When I typed the first draft of the homily I'm about to deliver, I had not yet come up with a title. So it sat in my computer folder for a long time under the heading Sin on Wednesday. When I went back to it to complete the sermon, I decided to stick with sin on Wednesday. Not as an exhortation to misbehave in the middle of the week, but simply because we cannot make our way through this most somber of weeks in the Christian year without addressing the matter of human sin. The epistle first epistle of John puts it plainly, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The letter to the Romans minces no words either. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 20th century theologian Reinhold Niebuhr once famously wrote, sin is the only empirically verifiable Listen to this. Let me start again. I obviously don't like it, but I'm going to say it right. Sin is the only empirically verifiable Christian doctrine. I hate that. And yet I wonder, as we make our way through the second decade of the 21st century, if we are not losing the heart of the matter of the Christian faith, when we pay no mind to the reality of the inherent unrighteousness of the human condition and the human creature, are we even still aware of our utter dependence on God's righteousness and mercy revealed most unsparingly in the death of Jesus on the cross. Those of you who are Presbyterians here today know that in the 1980s, I served on a national church committee that prepared a new confession of faith or creed for our denomination. We had many opportunities to get feedback from the broader church. In fact, we received more than 15,000 responses to various drafts. There was one line in every one of our drafts that drove the entire Presbyterian church utterly crazy. The line simply goes like this. We deserve God's condemnation. I thought I was going to have to get an unlisted telephone number People were offended up one side and down the other. Two very interesting suggestions were sent in. One was, some people deserve God's condemnation. (laughs) And if this doesn't sound like the 80s, I don't know what does. We deserve to be evaluated by God. Now listen, these are people who are in love with a doctrine called total depravity. And they hated the subject of our 
utter dependence on the grace of God in light of the sinfulness of our actions and our beings. But if it were not for our need, there would have been no need for the passion at all, would there? The events of this week would become nice but unnecessary gestures. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. But listen, you're pretty much okay, and I'm okay, and even if we're not okay, we're really okay, aren't we? No, we're not okay. We are without hope, save in God's sovereign mercy. I'm not suggesting that the Christian church return to the day of fire and brimstone preaching, of breast beating and guilt wallowing. I actually grew up in a church tradition in which we sometimes sang a hymn in worship that included these words, Oh God, what a worm am I. I don't want to sing that hymn ever again. But I do want to suggest today that we need to confront the essential facts of our lives, one of which is that we are members of the fallen human race. You remember those three monkeys who put their hands over their eyes and their ears and their mouths? See no evil, hear no evil, do no evil. I think those monkeys were actually mocking us, trying to show us how ridiculous it is to pretend that we will be able to avoid evil either in the world as it affects us and as we are a part of systems that are invaded by evil or in our hearts that within our hearts and souls, even our best intentions are not free from the perversion of sin and evil. I'm a big fan of Robert Coles. In one of his books, Children of Crisis, he dealt with the phenomenon of white supremacy in the 1960s and people who did things that today we would call hate crimes. He wrote, we must all know that the animal in us can be elaborately rationalized in a society until an act of cruelty, even murder, can be understood as standing for the good. Dynamited houses and minds that get injected with the powers of evil can be seen and felt to be moral courage. This week, we look to the cross of Jesus Christ, remembering why he died for us and he rose for us. There was no other answer in the end. I have been haunted for years by a story of a Catholic monk who made this confession about his behavior one morning at his monastery. I like coffee, he writes, 
The older I get, the more coffee I need. One day, I, I became worried that I was not going to have enough coffee and I would feel weak and dull all throughout the day. And so I went into the kitchen in the monastery and I drank all the coffee that was left, all of it. I think of it years later. I look at the dark, bitter remains that are in the cup in my mind, such a tiny thing, but in that cup not shared. There you see the root of the evil that disturbs us. Jesus would have left the coffee for his brothers. I wanted it all for myself. Today's passage from John's Gospel recounts an evening, the evening when evil and sin interject themselves into the midst of Jesus' inner circle. They're around the table. Jesus has washed and dried their feet. It is the night before his arrest. Judas already has betrayal in his heart. Jesus, we are told, has only love in his heart. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them all to the end, including the one who would flip the switch and set in motion the machinery that would be his destruction and death. Unable to push back any longer the dark reality that was descending, Jesus declared, Verily I say unto you, one of you will betray me. One of you twelve, whose feet I have just washed, with whom I'm sharing this meal. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of what he was talking about, who would betray him? Obviously, they thought it could have been any one of them. Peter says to the one called the beloved disciple, ask him who it is. Jesus answers, speaking to all, the one who will betray me is the one to whom I will give a piece of bread after I have dipped it in this dish, ironically, another sign of love and hospitality. Jesus gives the bread to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. And after he received the bread, John says, Satan entered into him. Jesus says, do, do quickly what you have to do. Still, everyone else is confused. Well, what does that mean? Does he, does he need to go buy stuff for the festival? Does he need to go help the poor? But Judas was not confused. Jesus was not confused. Judas immediately left, and it was dark. It was dark in every sense of the word. The forces of darkness are now unleashed to do their worst. This dark drama is painful to revisit. But at least once a year, we must look it straight in the eye so that we can see 
evil working on a cosmic level and evil in its form of personal human sin working in the human heart. There is a struggle, John says, indeed the entire New Testament testifies to the struggle between the powers of light and the powers of darkness. The presence of Satan in this story and in the soul of Judas reminds us of the objective evil that is everywhere in the world. And listen, listen, even among those closest to the Lord, no one is exempt I don't care whether you believe in Satan literally, the devil literally. The word Satan means God's adversary in Hebrew. Surely, if you are in your right mind, you cannot deny that there are forces that struggle against God's will, God's truth, God's goodness, God's grace and love. I cannot explain where these forces come from. Even the Bible spends little time on the origin question. The best I can do is point to the cross where you see the consequences of evil and where we hope when Easter morning comes, even that most terrible act of cruelty and death can be drawn in to God's great purposes of redemption. I don't believe for a second that Judas is excused because Satan got a hold of him. The powers of darkness might be a reason, but not an excuse. So so why did he do it? becoming the quintessential sinner of all time. Did he, did he feel neglected? Was he bored? Did he need the money? Was he tired of day after day being in the presence of this ultimately perfect human being? Do, do you ever get tired of goodness? Maybe it was irritation. But it was more than that. There is something in the human spirit that cannot stand the light and wants to turn to the dark. I, I, I remember a story that a minister wrote about his childhood about an Easter morning, literally an Easter morning, when he went into his backyard and saw a robin perched on the clothesline. Without a thought, he writes, I rushed back into the house and got my brother's slingshot. I rushed back out to find, much to my delight, that the robin was still there. I took aim with my slingshot. I let the rock go. I killed the robin in an instant. He fell at my feet. Instantly I felt remorse and I couldn't figure out why I had done it. All these years later, I've decided 
I did it just for the hell of it. I knew better, but I did it anyway. Only Jesus, Jesus and Judas know the deep reasons why Judas did what he did. And unless we scapegoat him all the way, we have to remember that the 11 others, if they did not betray him, they all denied him, didn't they? In the end, in the end, they all forsook him and fled. The next time Judas appears in John's gospel, he appears in the Garden of Gethsemane, standing shoulder to shoulder with the soldiers and the policemen who have come to arrest Jesus. They're holding their weapons and, of course, their torches and their lanterns. Remember, it was dark, and it will be dark until Easter morning. Was there any sense that the betrayal by Judas was a part of God's plan for redemption, a plan willingly executed by Jesus in every sense of the word? Yes, I would say. Because even the worst acts on earth can be used by God for the purposes of salvation. Did Judas, of his own free will, betray Jesus? Yes, he did. He was a moral agent responsible for everything. So here's a question to take with you. I won't answer it. You decide. Was Judas ultimately forgiven? Carlisle Marnie once said that the great tragedy of Judas's life was that not that he had betrayed Jesus, but that he did not hold on until Sunday to see what God would do with original sin and with his own sin. What, what do you think? What about Judas and the eternal scheme of things? I don't know what happened to him. I'm leaving that decision to Almighty God. I don't know the nature of the burden of sin or guilt or shame that you might have brought to this service of worship today. I know that I have brought my own share. I also know by faith and through hope that there is no burden too heavy for God, no sin too massive for God, no trough of regret too low for God. This is the good news. I believe that nothing, absolutely nothing, that is wrong with you or with me is beyond the forgiveness of Almighty God. This is a great place to be today. 
It is a place where, where we are going to pray as our Savior taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Dear God, please, deliver us from evil.